0: How is everybody today? Good to be with you. We've got the first snow of the season under our belts. How many of you uh, yesterday got the Christmas tree up? Maybe there was some Christmas music playing. And we either hear celebration or groans. That's where we're at with that. Uh, we, we may have uh, had some Christmas music going in our house yesterday, not the tree up yet. But uh, man, really good to be with you. And I uh, want to welcome uh, everybody across all of our locations and online. And if you're just now joining us, we are in a series of messages Call We Are Trader's Point. And really, what we're doing is we're just kind of looking back at the faithfulness of God over our past, uh, not to sort of like enshrine that, but to look ahead towards what it is that God is calling us to do into the future. And uh, last week, I just made this observation that uh, most churches have about a 40 to 50 year lifespan. Meaning that at one point, there was a group of people that gathered together in a city somewhere, a community somewhere, and they said, "Uh, let's start a church. And God kind of breathed life into that gathering. And then there's these years of what we might just call like fruitfulness and faithfulness, where a new generation is coming to know Christ through that new work. But it's almost sort of like a, every church has an S-curve. So there's like this growth where they're reaching people, they're doing whatever it takes uh, to get the gospel message out. But then if you're not careful, vision leaks and mission begins to drift. And what we end up doing is instead of taking risks, instead of sacrificing, we can begin to sort of guard uh, what happened in the past and we sort of enshrine our preferences. And then the church begins to plateau and then experiences a long, slow decline and eventual death. It's usually about 40 to 50 years because that represents a generation. One generation failed to pass the baton to the next. Now, one of the very unique things about our church is that we're pushing 200 years old, which means that our life cycle is kicked over four or five different times. Uh, translation. What that meant was that there was a group of men and women uh, throughout every generation of our church that decided this won't stop with us, that we're going to pass the baton to the next generation. We're we're not going to hold so tightly to the way that we've always done things. We're going to hold loosely to our preferences. Now, we're going to be very clear about what God has always called us to do and to be about as a church. That will never change. But we're going to talk about some of the things that can and even need to change to reach a new generation. That's been baked into our DNA, and I'm so grateful for that. I recall uh, 1 Corinthians 12 where it said the men of Issachar understood the times in which they live and knew what they should do. And that's right now, that's really what this series is is about, is we're like, okay, uh, let's take a, a look at what God has done in our past and thank him for it. Now, let's understand the times in which we live in order to see where God is leading us next. And last week I just uh, read from uh, the prophet Isaiah where God is recalling to the Israelites their history and how he had come through for them and delivered them from Egyptian slavery through the Red Sea. And he said, as amazing as that was, I want you to forget all of that because I'm about to do something new. And in fact, I've already begun. And uh, right now, I just want to—I um, don't wanna take this season of our church for granted. I've shared this with a few people, that right now, it, it just honestly feels like there's some momentum building in our church. I don't know if you can feel that or not, but I can. And there's this sweet spirit in our church right now that I, I don't know how long it'll last. So I'm actually trying to like soak it up, you know? And what I mean by that, is uh, just the number of like critical emails that I've gotten has just dropped drastically. Like, right? Like, like, just like knock on wood. Like, some of you are like, well, I'll send you one this week. All right? So, but, um, But uh, just lots of encouragement, lots of like, hey, we're all in. There's just like some amazing things happening. Now, with that said, I'm not saying that uh, you can't ever offer constructive criticism or admonishment. I need it just like anybody else. We've all got our blind spots. But there just kind of seems to be like God has kind of pruned us as a church. He's focused us as a church. We've come through a really difficult uh, few years. And right now it just kind of feels like this anticipation. I said this last week. We don't ever want to speculate what God will do. We do want to anticipate. God, what is it that you desire to do within us? So that's what this series is about. And man, over the last seven days, I've had a bunch of people come up to me that are brand new to our church. And they're like, man, this is such good information for us to have. Like we're all in. And I've had people that have been here over 40 years that have come up to me and just said, man, we've never been more excited about the future and the direction of our church than we are right now. And so um, it's awfully quiet in here. Let's just like clap for that. All right, I so, say, yeah, thanks. You know, that's not for you, that's for me. All right, so... Uh, uh, So this is the kind of where we're going in the series. Last week, if you were here, I just called this um, the Great Commission Engine. That's some terminology our staff uses to talk about it. And what I mean by that is that all this is based on Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission of every uh, church, at least it should be, where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And so if you were to pop the hood of every God-honoring, Christ-centered, Bible-teaching church, you would find something similar to this. Now, their terminology might be a little bit different, but in essence, it's the same thing because this is what we see in the New Testament church, these markers. So last week, we talked about knowing God. We want to help you know God, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge, an intimate relationship. Uh, This week, I want to talk about, we want to help people find life-giving relationships Now, with that said, um, we can't, I think you know this, but I just want to go ahead and say it. We can't do relationships for you, but we do want to help create the environment where those relationships can happen. And they need to be um, life-giving, not life-taking, Um, And what I mean by life-giving is not only does it like encourage you, fill you up, that sort of a thing, uh, because it's not just about a bunch of people kind of telling you what you want to hear. It it could also be people that are telling you some hard truths. Because life-giving also means relationships that help you grow to look more like Jesus. So when I say life-giving relationships, I'm not talking about social events or dating services. I'm talking about relationships that help form you and me more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And this is so clearly one of the defining marks of the New Testament church. Now, in Acts chapter 2, like the book of Acts is all about the very beginning of the big C church. And in Acts chapter 2, one of the things that you'll read in that chapter is that all the believers were together. And while they gathered together on the day of this thing called Pentecost, it says the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And in that day, the Holy Spirit removed any unnecessary barrier that might stand between them and the gospel. And one of those barriers was a language barrier. And so the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And so they were able to speak in languages they did not know. So that way people who didn't speak the same language would hear and understand the gospel message. Then Peter stands up and preaches the sermon of his life from verses 14 to 40. And afterwards, the people asked this question, what should we do with that? Like, what should we do with what we just heard? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And then this is what it says. Those who believed in verse 41, those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. So one of the things I just wanna point out is that when Peter preached this message, they were like, "Huh." They, did, they weren't like, "Huh, that's interesting information. We'll just contemplate that for a bit. No, they were like, what do we do with this? And Peter's response wasn't like, you know, raise a hand, fill out a card, walk an aisle. It was repent, which means like turn away from your life of sin and run towards Jesus and be baptized. It was a spontaneous baptism right in the moment. And the church started that day with 3000 people. So I just wanna just go ahead and point this out that the size of church is not spiritual. We have a tendency nowadays to kind of uh, just stereotype churches. And so we say things like, well, you know, big churches are large and impersonal and hard to get connected and they're a mile wide and an inch deep. And smaller churches is where it's at because you're gonna get deeper teaching and more relationships. And yes, maybe, but not always. Yes, there are big churches that can be a mile wide and an inch deep and really hard to get connected. There can also be smaller churches where um, it's kind of cliquish and hard to get connected. Size isn't spiritual. And one of the things that we see in the New Testament church is it started as a very large church from day one, but they didn't stay in that large setting. This all was a result of Pentecost. This was a result of the Holy Spirit falling freshly upon them. This was a mountaintop experience. This was worship night, men's night, women's night, and Easter for them, all wrapped up into one. And wouldn't it be great if we could live at the mountaintop? But most of the time, that's not where life is lived. Most of life is lived in the valleys. And valleys are what produce fruit. So what I want to do is like Pentecost is the mountaintop. And then immediately after the author of Acts shows us what their daily rhythms were in the valleys. And it says in verse 42, all of the the believers, uh, this is a key word, devoted. um, uh, Hard things require devotion. So uh, it wasn't necessarily easy. It wasn't always convenient. They, that's why they devoted themselves to what? Uh, four things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing meals, which included the Lord's supper, and a prayer. So this was like the, the, the settling into daily rhythms kind of life. These were like four definitive markers of the early church. And then in verse 46, it says, they worshiped together at the temple each day. Uh, which just is shorthand for large groups. That's largely what we're doing right now in whatever room that you might be in, unless you're watching online in your living room, that uh, you're in a a big room right now. This is like sort of like the, the temple for them. And then it says, and they met in homes for the Lord's supper. So understand it's not either or. That the church is an expression of large groups and small groups. Why? Well, there are some things that can happen in large groups that cannot happen in a living room. And there are some things that happen in a living room that can't happen in this, this room. Both are really important. They met for the Lord's Supper. They shared meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Now, notice this. And each day, um, who added to their fellowship? The Lord added. So we don't generate growth. We're not trying to manipulate growth. God, it, it's sort of like gardening. Our, our, our uh, focus should be just tending to the garden and let God bring whatever growth is there. Um, so we're not trying to grow a, a large church. But, but at the same time, I'm never going to put a no vacancy sign out front. And I'm going to continue to tend the garden. Why? Because there's more and more people that need the hope of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that they all need to gather in our church. That's why we do multi-site and plant churches and send people out. But we just trust that if we're faithful with what God has asked us to do, uh, uh, teaching and preaching and fellowship and sharing meals and, and, um, um, and prayer, that God will be the one who will bring the growth. And, um, and it says he added to their fellowship those who are being saved. Now, the common theme that runs consistently through all of this description of the New Testament church is that they were in relationship. You just don't see solo Christianity anywhere. Now, is there a personal part of their faith and our faith? Yeah, you bet. But, it, but, it, um, but there was nothing private about it. It means that they were in relationships that were life giving and they were devoted to it. Now, Uh, Here's a question that I have as I kind of look at Acts chapter 2. Why uh, all four of those things? Why not just say that they devoted themselves to teaching and to prayer and then call it a day? Because God isn't after converts only. Uh, God really isn't um, all that interested or impressed in your belief in him. And I think a lot of times we just think, well, that's kind of what God wants is God just wants me to acknowledge that I believe in him, that he exists. Uh, but the Bible even says that the demons believe in God like, and, they, and they shudder at him. And so he's like, I, I don't want you just to believe in me or even to be converted. Like conversion isn't the finish line, it's the starting line. What God desires is disciples. Um, now he doesn't want disciples for just for himself. He wants discipleship for you and me. Because um, life is too difficult, and you cannot sustain your faith without it. So what, So what is a disciple? Uh, you know, we, that's kind of a terminology that we kind of you know, use in Scripture, and we, maybe we hear that, and Jesus had disciples. What is a disciple? Let me break it down in maybe perhaps a, a really simplistic definition, and then we can expound from that. A disciple is just simply a learner. A disciple is somebody who has a great interest in something— or someone, and so they uh, spend time researching, or they spend time reading, or they find a group of people that are really good at that thing that they're interested in, and they hang out with them. So you are, like if you have an interest in golf, and you want to improve your golf game, and so you start, you know, practicing, and you get the clubs, and you go to the driving range, and you're, you know, YouTubing, you know, golf videos, in essence, you're becoming a disciple of golf, if you have a great interest in baking or you just fill in the blank, whatever hobby it may be in, uh, oftentimes what um, uh, finds itself in our Instagram or YouTube algorithm is what's discipling you. So it's whatever you're watching, whatever you're reading, whatever you're examining, and it's actually changing you into somebody new. So a disciple is somebody who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone, And now they are being formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's what God desires. And all of discipleship happens within the context of relationship. You just can't become a disciple by listening to a sermon, reading a book or watching a podcast. It comes in the form of relationships. Relationships is how God always does it. He always involves others in your spiritual growth and he will always involve you in other spiritual growth. Now, I'm not saying I always like that. I mean, sometimes I wish that, um, you know, I could just read a book or take a test and God would go there, I grant you discipleship. That would be a lot easier and a lot less painful and more convenient. But um, the road to discipleship is messy at times, and it's gonna require you to open up to people. And here's the thing about people. Um, people can build you up and they can tear you down. Some of the most rewarding things about life are relationships, would you not agree? And some of the most painful things about life are relationships. And what God can do is even in the most life-giving relationships, he'll use that for your benefit and grow your faith and even in the painful experiences, God can redeem that and use it to help you grow to look more like Jesus, now there's lots of examples that we could look at. I want to look at one real quickly from Acts chapter 9 in which um, God used another person to help someone grow in their, in their, in their journey. And uh, uh, in Acts chapter 9 we read about the conversion of this guy named Saul. He later becomes Paul and he's on the road to uh, Damascus. And what I love about Saul's story is that if God could get a hold of his life and change him, there isn't anybody God can't reach. There is nobody that is beyond God's grace. And look at what it says in verse one. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. That right there tells you pretty much everything you need to know about this guy. Right? Now, here's the thing about Saul. He wasn't an atheist. He wasn't anti-God. He was actually very, very religious. He was just confused. And so he saw all of these like early Christians and he had no idea what they were about, these Jesus followers, and he thought it was a threat to his religion. And so he thought he was doing God a favor by going out and killing them. And in verses three through nine, uh, Jesus comes to Saul within the form of a bright light that it temporarily blinds him. Look at what it says in verse six or verse four. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now for the next three days, Saul cannot see anything. He cannot eat anything. He's just sort of like sitting in darkness. And this is a real pivotal moment for him. Why three days? Like we don't really know. Uh, And we could speculate about that. I mean, Jesus was in the tomb three days. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are happening. But here it is that Jesus has come to him in the form of a bright light. He's spoken to Saul. And then for three days, he just allows him to sit in darkness. And this was a pivotal moment in his life. Things are about to change for Saul for better or for worse is yet to be determined. And his he, his response could have gone a number of ways. He could have gotten bitter. He could have like, you know, how could you do this to me? Or his he, he could have completely changed and turned towards God. But for these three days, it's just darkness and silence. But there's about to be um, a sort of an unexpected thing that happens here. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. He said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Ananias knew who this guy was. And uh, he said, he is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias (laughs) coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Now, before we go any further, you just gotta stop and think to yourself, how would you have responded if you were in Ananias' sandals? Here you are just kind of minding your own business, you know, just kind of going about your day and God knocks on your door, shows up and goes, hey, I want you to go uh, down the street and I want you to uh, meet with a known murderer. Somebody who kills uh, Christians, somebody who you are enemy number one. Uh, Just imagine what your response would have been. And Ananias said in verse 13, but... Lord, yeah, that's that's a pretty good, you know, comeback. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. So so what's Ananias saying? He's like, um, this is a threat. Like if I go and meet with this guy, he has the authority to arrest me and uh, he might even take my life. And Ananias is pushing back on God, and he's like, God, why would you cause, uh, call me to go meet with this guy? Now here's, Ananias doesn't necessarily say it, but I think this is implied, is that I think that he's going, hey, uh, God, uh, you've already begun the process of speaking to him. You've already blinded him. Why don't you close the deal yourself? <laughs> That's what I would have been saying. Uh, why do you need me? That, that is an, and I'm going to come back to that. That is an interesting thing that we see. In fact, the, 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 church, the big C church, same question. God, why would you need us? Why can't you just close the deal? yourself? If you want the world to know that you have come, that, to know that you've sent your son, why can't you speak? I think you would do a more convincing job, God. Like, I think we can all agree, God would do a better job than we can. But yet, he he chooses to involve us in his mission. There's something so mind-blowing about that. Well, it says in verse 15, but the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen. Can I just say this, just a little commentary? Sometimes we just gotta stop asking questions and go. I think sometimes we just like, uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to me. All the people come up to me, hey, my, you know, my atheist friend has these questions. Can you answer them? And sometimes I'm just like, no, I, don't, I, I, I could answer them. I don't, think, I don't know that it'll necessarily do any good because the question isn't the thing. The question is the smoke screen. That we get really good at, 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 at asking all these kinds of questions and oftentimes we will never get our questions answered until we begin to move until we begin to take action. And so fascinating, God just chooses not to engage with Ananias on any of his objections. He just goes, Ananias, would you just go? Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. In other words, God's going, Ananias, I've got a plan that uh, Saul doesn't see coming and you can't possibly even know, I just need you to go. And verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So, Ananias went and found Saul. Man, you got to commend him. Like he didn't want to do it, but he went ahead and he he did it. And he laid his hands on him and said, "Brother Saul, I love that. Just right, right out of the gates, man. He's like he's not. This isn't an enemy. This isn't you know a threat, brother Saul." The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. That is a remarkable passage. Now, what, what was it that Ananias had that had that kind of power? Like, did, did he just have some sort of like amazing power in his hands that, you know, no. There, there wasn't anything about Ananias at all other than his obedience to do what God had asked him to do. And the Bible is filled with all kinds of these examples. This is just one of my favorite ones where you get done reading it and you kind of scratch your head and you're like, okay, man, that was really, really interesting. Why was that necessary? Why did God send Ananias to do something that God easily could have done on his own? Because here's the answer. Maybe the power isn't so much in what Ananias said, but in his willingness to go and be with Saul in his hour of darkness, isolation, and confusion. God is trying to say something to us beyond just what the narrative says. God is trying to say, I always involve others in your spiritual growth. Now, you may have come to know God uh, by yourself, in your backyard somewhere, but somewhere along the line, God had sent somebody in your life to kind of get you to that space. God always uses others to lead us to a saving knowledge of him. And it's this thing, just this power of presence that is just undeniable. You know, when I uh, first got into ministry, hands down the most um, uncomfortable thing for me to do was make hospital visits. Uh, All kinds of reasons for that. You know, I don't really care for hospitals. I don't know how many of us really do. Uh, But uh, I would go to the hospital, kind of maybe uncomfortable. I didn't necessarily know. Sometimes I didn't know the people very well or I didn't know them at all. And so I always kind of felt like I was intruding and, you know, I'd always get lost. And, you know, I'd always go into the wrong room. It's just all kinds of things maybe uncomfortable. And then I would walk into the room and maybe somebody's in a lot of pain. Maybe the family is in tears. And I just felt this incredible pressure to say the right thing that would help make it better. And it just made me really uncomfortable. And I remember sharing this with a mentor of mine, right when I first got started in the ministry, he said something that totally changed my perspective on it forever. He said, Aaron, it is not what you say. They're not expecting you to fix anything or to say the right thing. It is the power of presence. You just go sit with them. You just go stand with them. And that totally just changed everything about it. Uh, uh, For those of us who are fixers in the room, And I'm a fixer. It is so hard for me for you to bring me a problem. And immediately I go into how you can fix it. And sometimes we just need to stop and we just need to feel it. And we just need to sit with him. See, there's something about what Ananias did. And the fact that God would call him to do this, it sent a message to Saul. Brother Saul, like you're not in this alone. And God loves you so much that he's actually called me to come. And Saul would have known that Ananias would have been afraid of him. And I think all of this, God used it in profound ways. Now, all that to simply say, can I just ask you this question? It's real simple. Um, Who is your Ananias? And um, who needs you to be an Ananias for them? It's so like, God, I don't wanna enter into that relationship. I don't wanna say that thing. I don't wanna go. All kinds of reasons why, and God is calling us to go. God is always calling us into the lives of others. There are 59 one another statements in the scriptures, and I don't have time to go through all 59 of them. You can look them up for yourself, but just we just see all these one another throughout scripture, man, love one another, carry each other's burdens, serve one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another. It is all over the Bible. You and I can't do this thing alone. Jesus didn't want to do this thing alone. One of the first things he does, he just gathers up a group of diverse men and he says, for the next three years, let's just hang out together. And uh, when Jesus, uh, the night before his arrest and crucifixion, when he's in the garden, he didn't want to be alone. And he said, guys, can you just stay awake with me to pray? And if the sinless, perfect son of God needed relationships... How much more do you and I need them? So one of the things that we try to do, and hands down, this is, I think you could ask any one of our staff and they would all tell you the same thing. This is one of the most challenging things about what we do as a church is to try to help create environments where you can connect in life-giving relationships. Why? Because people are messy. And inconsistent and it 's challenging, and we 're busy and personality conflicts and differences and all the things that happen, and so you know we, what we 're trying to do is we 're trying to create these environments where life giving relationships can take place um, so we 're we're, we're pretty decent at the big group gathering, like we, we know how to do that it 's the smaller group gathering that we have to consistently lean into and push time into, and it 's r- roughly Um, roughly I think 60% of our church is in what, that we know of is in like a smaller group setting. And we want to see 100% where you don't just come and kind of hear teaching and pray and call it a day and go home, but you're involved in the lives of other people and they're involved in your life as well. Now, if you're looking for a way to get connected into a group, the best way is to sign up for Rooted. Now, Rooted is a 10-week experience designed to connect you with God, the church, and your purpose. Uh, You get together with about 10 or 15 other people, you study the Bible, you engage in prayer, you have serve experiences, you share stories, build community, practice these spiritual rhythms into your life. And uh, we just wrapped up our fall session of Rooted. We had a celebration on Wednesday night. Let me hear it for those of you that uh, hit hit the finish line of Rooted. Uh, Yeah, I think we got a few pictures um, of the Rooted celebration. Uh, We had 700, I think 710 people sign up for Rooted. We had 655 completed, which we're pretty happy about that. But out of that, uh, we had 39 baptisms that came out of Rooted alone. It was amazing. And... um, 33, 33 brand new groups came out of Rooted. In other words, they got done with it. They're like, we like this so much. We wanna to continue to stay together as a group. And um, uh, the, I think quite possibly one of the most impressive things about it was we did a survey with them. And afterwards, 99% of the people that finished Rooted said they would recommend it to a friend. I, I don't know of any other thing that I've ever seen that's got that high of a, of a rating. So here's what I wanna say. Is... Um, is um, a uh, rooted. Our winter session of Rooted begins in January, and registration opens today. And so if you would like to sign up for the next round of Rooted, you can do that today. What a way to kick off the brand new year by jumping into a Rooted group. That'll help get you connected for 10 weeks and then quite possibly stay into a group uh, beyond that. And we just try to do groups through every age level. Our kids' ministries, students' ministries, they have groups with the same leader, with the same goal of trying to build these life-giving relationships because we all need an Ananias in our lives. So who is it that God has sent into your life to help you see what maybe you're, you're unable to see? To provide some strength when you're weak, to say a word over you when you need it the most. Now, I, I just want to say that um, one of the greatest weapons that the enemy uses against you and me is just is this, this word right here, isolation. That, that's his biggest play is that if he wants to get into your life, what he'll do, his first move, like a game of chess, is he'll get you separated from others. So just get you alone. And when sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, one of the first things that it impacted was their relational connection with each other and with God. And then when God cried out and he said, hey, hey, you guys, like, where are you? Um, they were hiding from God and we've been hiding ever since. Um, During World War II, there was a a soldier that was talking about how he was stationed uh, with his platoon occupying a German town... And uh, it was a beautiful afternoon, and so he decided to kind of go for a walk. He wandered away from his platoon, walked up on this hillside to kind of take in the view. And right then he heard two rifle shots followed by two bullets that landed at his feet. And he said his heart began to pound out of his chest because he realized that he was in the crosshairs of a sniper. And he ran back to the safety of his platoon. And this is what this soldier said. He goes, I was an easy shot up there all alone. Snipers wait for someone to drift away from the group. And the same thing is true spiritually. And it's happening right now in our culture. Now, uh, odd things are happening right now in our culture where we have never been more interconnected through technology, never been more alone. Uh, loneliness is just this like epidemic that's, that's uh, happening all across our society. And then when it comes to what uh, believers say about it, look at some of these statistics. These come from Ed Stetzer. Only 21% of believers say that they need to connect with others in order to grow in their relationship with Jesus. So in other words, 79% of us say, I can do this on my own. I I can just read my Bible, listen to a sermon, take in a podcast, and and I'm good. 65% say they keep their personal struggles to themselves. So the enemy just gets us isolated. One study done by Yale a few years ago said that only six out of ten women say they have a close, peer relationship that's marked by openness and mutual commitment. One out of ten men say that they have it. Loneliness is like this just epidemic that's just facing a lot of men. Now, I think that uh, uh, um, at, at a broad level, I think ladies are just much, much better at just fostering that kind of emotional connection with others. Men have a tendency to isolate. There was a study done uh, at Harvard where they uh, over 7,000 people during the course of nine years, and they looked at the keys to flourishing in, in life. And Robert Putnam wrote a book about all their findings in a book called Bowling Alone. And he had this startling statement. He said this, he said, if you belong to no groups, but you decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. Wow, so I think that it's safe to say this, get in a group or die. I could, I could just say that. I, I don't think I'll say that though. Right? That's totally kidding, sort of, right? No, I think, that, I think Putnam does say, what he's saying is, is that social isolation is as big of a risk factor for premature death as smoking. So our emotional and spiritual health is at risk when we're alone. And we flourish as human beings when we are rightly connected to God vertically and when we are rightly connected with others Horizontally, there is, pow- uh, there is power in connection. There's also power in isolation, but not the good t- kind. And when we are isolated, we are more likely to give in to temptation. We're more likely to be discouraged, disillusioned, and self-absorbed. We're more likely to create and rehearse negative narratives in our head. We're more likely to spend money foolishly. We're more likely to relapse into destructive habits. I know that for me, like just speaking for me, that if the only voice that I've been listening to lately, the only voice that's been coaching me, the only voice that's been comforting me sounds like my own, that I'm in a dangerous spot. Because I need others to speak into my life as well. I need, I need others to help me be able to see so that I can be healthy and, and uh, growing to look more like Jesus. Listen, um, we have an enemy who is stronger than you, but he's not stronger than us. And I think that most of us know this. I think that most of us know we need this. We know we should have it, and yet uh, even right now, uh, maybe you're, you're kind of pushing back on me, and that's totally fine. And uh, I would say that there's two big objections to putting yourself out there to get involved in a group or other life-giving relationships. And what I mean is not just coming in here late and leaving early and just being kind of an anonymous face in the crowd. I think that for a lot of us, there's two reasons why we resist this. One is we just say, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And I think the believers in the New Testament church would have been too. That's why they devoted themselves to it. The second thing is, is this, and this is a lot more understandable and I wanna have much more compassion with this, is you say, well, Aaron, I did that one time and I got burned and I got hurt. And I've got this baggage in my past because I got involved in a group where I opened myself up to people and people that I thought I loved and trusted, they used what I shared with them against me. Or I went through a divorce and they ostracized me or I got caught in an addiction and they just shamed me. And so you said never again. And I'm so sorry. That's real. That kind of pain is real. And yet without diminishing the pain that you experience, can I just simply say, Jesus would nod his head in affirmation as well because he was hurt too. Every one of his disciples turned on him. And yet God in his goodness can even take the pain, and he can redeem it. I've been a pastor for almost 25 years. Some of the most hurtful relationships that I've had have come within the church that I'm serving. Some of the most life-giving relationships have come from the church that I'm serving. And if I cut myself off because of the pain, then I wouldn't experience the life-giving relationships that God wants, listen, listen to me, to bring healing to that hurt. Because people hurt you, God will also use people to help heal you. So relationships and groups, they're kind of like a retirement account. You, know, you may not think you need one now, but one day you will. And when you need one, if that's when you start investing in it, then it's, then it's a little bit too late. And one day you're going to find yourself in a place just like Saul, Can't see, can't eat, sitting alone, feeling isolated. And who will be the people that you've been building intentional relationships with that will come around you? Listen, this is what we want for you. God wants discipleship for you because he knows that belief in and of itself is not enough to sustain you from the attacks of an enemy and everything that life will throw at you. You've gotta have the foundation of discipleship. So I just wanna finish with this passage out of John. And then we're actually gonna walk just a real quick video of one of our groups after I pray. But let me just read this passage over you. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Notice he didn't say anything about um, good theology. He didn't say anything about arguing a legitimacy for your faith. He didn't say anything about answering the questions of your atheistic friend. He said, your love will prove your discipleship. Father, we come to you today and we thank you that you have desired a relationship with us and that you often use other people to help us see that and to claim that. And so, God, I just want to pray a prayer over those, I just feel it in the room, those who are experiencing the pain of relational fallout. Whatever that's looked like, whatever that's been like, God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would fall freshly into the room and just the remaining moments that we have together and that you'd bind up those wounds, that you'd bring some healing and that you would allow us maybe just to be, be open to what it is that you want to do in and through our lives, that we would that we would be willing to become vulnerable again, that the answer can't just be in guarding ourselves and further isolating ourselves. So God, if there's anybody here that needs that kind of a word of encouragement, I just pray that they would receive it. Pray that we would really learn, really lean into this whole command that you've given us to love each other, even our perceived enemies, like Saul and Ananias, that we could say, man, we don't see eye to eye on very many things, but you're my brother, you're my sister, because that's what you've done to reconcile us to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.